Thank you. Thank you very much. Why don't we take a moment? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that though we're not where we're supposed to be, we're not where we used to be. And I pray that today, God, the scripture that says the path of the righteous is like the dawn. It grows brighter and brighter until noonday. Lord, I pray that you would make people's paths like that. That they wouldn't look back, but they'd look forward. That you would help them not to look over their shoulder in longing or in bitterness, but to look forward in faith. That you would give encouragement to hearts today. Lord, I pray that you'd be high and lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness, and everyone who looks to you would be healed. God, we ask it in the name of Christ Jesus, your Son. Amen. Well, I was here yesterday. I'm here every first and third Saturday of the month in this room praying from 9 to 10 a.m., and I was talking with Pastor Paul, and I've felt led of the Lord, and he's felt led of the Lord uh, to have a month of prayer and fasting, Uh, and I think it's important that we come together and do that. So every Saturday, everybody say Saturday. Every Saturday this month, from 9 to 10 a.m., I'm going to be in here praying. You don't have to be here, but you're welcome to be here. And when I say fasting, hear me loud and clear. If you struggle with an eating disorder, this is not for you to give up food. Okay, give up, give up social media, give, give up your favorite Netflix show, spend that time in prayer instead, fast that. But if you struggle in that area, please don't do this. But for those of you who are healthy, I pray that you would just take one meal a day during this next month. And just give it as an offering to the Lord and spend some time with Him. If you're not sure how to pray, because it's a difficult thing to do, uh, I recommend you get this book. It's called How to Pray by Pete Grieg. I don't recommend books often. I love to read. Most people just don't have the time and hate to read. I'm kind of weird that way. But I do recommend you read this book, How to Pray. It's a simple title by Pete Grieg. I've read it twice. It's filled with notes. I can't get enough of it. The simplest guide on how to pray I've ever read. So take that or leave it. So, I'd like to say welcome, as Pastor Paul said. I'm Pastor Dylan. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Thank you to those of us joining online as well. Pastor Paul was teaching next this morning, which is why I'm here. I'm grateful to be able to open God's Word today. We're continuing our series in the book of Exodus called Exit Us. That's often our prayer, or our prayer, excuse me, or our cry to the Lord. It's the get-me-out-of-here spirit that we have. And if we've learned one thing from the book of Exodus thus far, it's that God often tells us to walk through something instead of walking around it. That he often puts us through things to teach us how to endure because he's doing something inside of us that's more important than our immediate circumstances. The book of Exodus is the Israelites learning that what's inside of them is far more deadly than the Egyptians and far more deadly than the wilderness. The enemy within is more spiritually dangerous than the enemy without. Last week, we wrapped up the Ten Commandments. Pastor Paul did a great job talking about uh, covenant, what that means, why it's important when approaching the commandments to understand that we're in covenant with God. And today, we're going to be talking about the Israelites' journey through the wilderness. They're merely a month out of Egypt, and yet they start to run into some problems. You would think that being so close to a recent example of God's power that they would keep their deliverance in mind, but it's easy to lose sight of things and lose sight of God. They have trouble calling to mind God's words in moments of testing. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 16. You can find your way there. We'll read that in a moment, Exodus 16. And as you find your place, a little bit of background. Since they left Egypt a month ago, the Israelites have seen the army of Egypt miraculously swallowed up 
They've seen water provided for them miraculously in the desert. And just one chapter ago in Exodus 15, they're singing praise songs to God. They're at this high celebratory moment. And that sounds a lot like some of our lives. We witness God do incredible things. We see his guiding hand. And then, bam, we're we're focused on moments of testing and temptation. The Israelites are about to enter their first big test. Let's read that together in Exodus 16. It's a little bit longer of a scripture today, so pay attention, bear with us. It's going to be verse 1 through verse 31. Verse 1 through verse 31 in Exodus 16. They set out from, the, from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Pause for a second. Sin has nothing to do with the English word sin here. It's just the name of the wilderness that surrounds Mount Sinai. Okay? The wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he's heard your grumbling against him. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord." Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each each one of you, as much as you can eat. You shall take an omer, which is about two quarts, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered gathered some more, some less. And when they measured it with an omer, whoever had much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and smelled. And and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as they could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came to Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. So they laid it aside until the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and they were, there were no worms in it. 
And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Lord, today we ask that your word would accomplish what you intended. You said that your, your word will never return to you empty. So I pray that it would produce in us what you intended to produce in us. I pray that it would create praise and thankfulness and gentle spirits. God, I pray that you would make people for your own possession today. In Christ's name, amen. When I was a new believer in Jesus, I would often get these promptings from God to do things that I really didn't want to do. Have any of you ever been there? You've, you, you've been provoked to do something you really don't want to do, but you do it anyway. The Israelites are in a moment like this. When I was a kid, my neighbor and I hated each other. His name was Chris. My brothers and I were his endless tormentors. Here's a picture of the agents of chaos themselves. I'm in that floral, disgusting shirt in the middle that should be a criminal offense. Uh, but there we were in all of our glory. We used to let our dog beat up his dog. I'd light fireworks off so they'd land on his roof, and his roof was made out of metal, and they'd explode, and he'd come outside and be like, who's doing that? And he'd freak out. And uh, one time my brothers, in the middle of the night, took their samurai swords over to his house and chopped down his fence. I take no responsibility. My parents should have known not to buy us samurai swords. But um, we would invent ways to create chaos for this guy because we hated him. And then I became a believer when I was 18 years old. And I'm praying in my room by myself, and out of nowhere I just feel the prompting, you should go next door and apologize to Chris. And I was like, oh man, I don't want to do that. But I walk down my driveway with sweaty palms, I go over to Chris's house and knock on his door. And Chris opens and I say, Chris, I just came over here, I just want to say I'm really sorry, I've become a Christian, God's changed my life, and I just wanted to apologize for everything. And it did not go well at all, okay? He just, he looks at me, he's like, yeah, you kids were absolutely terrible and chopped down my fence. And everything within me wanted to say, because you deserved it, you're a terrible person. But I had to eat some humble pie and learn what it is to obey the Lord when I don't feel it. The Israelites are about to enter their first big test. And in these moments, I think this scripture gives us the principles we need to navigate these moments of God's testing. Exodus 16 helps us answer the question, how do you handle testing? Sometimes in the course of our Christian journeys, God will test us. He will put us in situations where we would rather not be. He did it to his son Jesus right after his baptism. The scriptures say, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. You see, the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. God leads these Israelites into the wilderness to be tested after a celebratory moment. They're, they're riding this high. They've been delivered from Egypt. They're singing praise songs in Exodus 15. 
It's after some of our highest moments when we experience God that God will bring us to a moment of testing, not to hurt us, not to tempt us, but to mold us into the people that we should be. There's always a Monday coming after a praise-filled Sunday. And one of my jobs as one of the pastors of this church is to equip you with God's Word so that you can be joyful on the mountain or in the valley, whether you're in a celebratory moment or whether you're in a moment of testing, that you can learn to say, along with the Apostle Paul, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Listen to verses 2 and 3. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you've brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Ouch. Imagine somebody coming up to me and saying, Pastor, I wish I would have died before you baptized me. Let me be really candid with you. Life as a Christian isn't easier, it's harder. But you will find more joy and more meaning with God than you will ever find apart from Him. The Israelites here go so far as to say, instead of allowing you to lead us out here to die, we wish God would have killed us when we were comfortable in Egypt. Be careful who you blame and be careful when you look back over your shoulder because nostalgia has a way of painting the past in technicolor and painting the future as gray and hopeless. It lies to you. Do not believe it. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 verse 7 says, Do not say, Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. In moments of testing, be careful what your hearts meditate on. Our memories are deceptively selective, and the golden days just might not be as good as you remember them. It was easy for the Israelites to look straight past the miracles of God's deliverance and see only the meat pots and the abundance of bread and forget all about the whips of the Egyptians and the misery that God had rescued them out of. It's easy to see too many positives in the past, too many negatives in the present, and too little hope for the future. But when you survey your past, make sure you are circumspect in your assessment. When you look at your present, remember that God will not leave you here helpless. Do not speak from a place of raw emotion. You're almost always going to be wrong. Some of us have that tendency to say, God's never done anything for me, and God doesn't hear my prayers. When our very life is sustained by daily help from the Lord. Sometimes we take it a step further and we blame those around us. Sometimes it's justified, and a lot of the time it's not. When I was a kid, uh, my favorite movie was Forrest Gump. Me and my dad would watch Forrest Gump like once a month. It was borderline an obsession. Like I would make him watch it all the time. And during one scene that was particularly traumatic for me as a kid, Lieutenant Dan is screaming at Forrest because he saved his life during Vietnam. And Lieutenant Dan is paralyzed from the waist down. He, he hates his new life. He looks back and wish I, would have, I wish I would have died with glory back then, and you messed it all up, you saved me. And he blames Forrest for it. 
even though Forrest only wanted to help like any good friend would. And eventually, Lieutenant Dan finds peace and happiness again when he accepts that life is good even when it's painful. But like him, we blame our loved ones, our spouses, our children, our parents, our friends, and sometimes even our spiritual leaders. We project onto others our disappointments with life and with God. But some things are just out of everyone's control. If people's complaining is directed at you, remember that their problem may just be with God. It has nothing to do with you. God said that to the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8. He said, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And when you're tempted to blast somebody else, consider that your perspective isn't perfect, you're not infallible, and God may be working where you do not see it because you do not possess all wisdom. Maybe your problem isn't with that person, maybe it's with God. One of my favorite Bible teachers, who has now passed away and gone to be with the Lord, kept a note on his desk, a little card that said this, If I find something in God's Word I don't like, the problem is not with God, it's with me. When you're looking back on your life, you'll find ample reason to be bitter at others and even in your own mind to be bitter with God. And yet, contrary to popular opinion, perhaps hindsight is not 2020, and we would do well to look forward in faith instead of backwards with longing or at the present with bitterness. Be careful before you blame God because your life's story isn't completely written yet. Life really is like a box of chocolates. You don't know what you're going to get. But God does, and he's promised good things to those who will continue to follow him. I find in moments of desolation and heartache, I am rarely thinking and feeling the way that I ought to. Don't assign blame to Moses and Aaron, whoever they are in your life, or to God, when you're still in the middle of the wilderness. How do you handle testing? Don't point the finger of blame. Don't grumble at God or at others while you're still not finished with your story and there still is more to be written. You have no right to grumble. Listen to Moses' response to Israel's grumbling in verses 4 and 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. God's response to Israel's grumbling is that he'll feed them with bread. But why does he do that? He says it right here. That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. The Israelites respond completely wrong to Moses and Aaron and ultimately to God. And yet God feeds them. And Moses tells them in verse 6 and 8, At evening you will know that it wasn't us, but it was ultimately the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. What are we? Your grumbling isn't against us, it's against the Lord. God pulled them out of Egypt. God took took them away from what they considered to be easy, and now God is putting them to the test. And if you've been walking with the Lord any amount of time, you know that he does this often to his children. He puts obstacles in our way to make us confront ourselves. That is what testing is. 
And so God says, I'll give them enough for each day to test them to see if they'll walk according to my law. And this is what, Mo, this is what Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Father, give us this day our daily bread. And there's a prayer in Proverbs 30 that says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may have too little and steal and dishonor God. You need God daily. You don't need a stockpile of resources, of money, of food, or, or even toilet paper. 2020 did some weird stuff to us, but we have the same predisposition as the Israelites here. We want security that we control versus a security we have to trust God for. When I first started working here, it was, it was very difficult. I lived in a basement that had like half of a window. I felt like Gollum living in a cave sometimes. I had a car that was breaking down every other month, and my diet basically consisted of ramen noodle packets with ragu sauce to mix it up every once in a while. I was working at a YMCA. I was going to school full-time. I was taking Greek. I was working here 25 hours uh, at the church, and I really barely had enough to get by. And it, it got to the point where I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. I mean, I was just going crazy. And then finally, the wiper in my car stopped working on my driver's side, so I had to do like a little shoulder lean every time it rained so I didn't kill everybody when I was driving. And eventually, somebody miraculously gave me a new car, and things began to improve, and that's amazing. But before I got rid of my old car, I took out a broken piece of it that I keep on display in my office. It's the broken casing for the windshield wiper engine. I didn't even know that was a thing, but here it is. And uh, I keep it there to remind me of God's provision, and I printed a little label on it that has a reference from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And it says this, Your clothing did not wear out, and your feet did not swell these 40 years. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, that he might make you know. That, bread, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, the whole point of daily bread is not bread at all. It's not about the provision, it's about the provider. Both our lack of resource and God's miraculous provision are meant to make us look at God with faith. And the opposite of that kind of faith is not doubt, it's grumbling. You see, grumbling is the complaining, the criticizing, and the general lack of confidence in God. I can't think of anything more antithetical, more incompatible, and more opposed to faith than grumbling. It's the reverse of praise. It's more than doubt. It's the distrust of God. Grumbling wants the gifts of God and sees covenant with God as optional. It wants a full stomach and leads to an empty spirit. It exchanges the glory of the creator for the creation. It puts the cart before the horse. Grumbling doesn't trust God. It just wants things from God. I will give them bread daily to see if they will walk in my laws. When God gives you what you want, do you forget all about him? Was it always about the bread for you? Or is there something more valuable to be found than cheap satisfaction? How do you handle testing? Look for God, not simply his blessings. Jesus reiterated this lesson in John chapter 6. 
He miraculously provides food for 5,000 people, and then the crowds are trying to make him king. They think, if, I, if he can provide food for us, he's the slot machine that never stops giving. Let's get this party rolling. They chase him across the sea, and, and he says this to them in John 6, You're only seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves instead of the miraculous things I've done. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And the crowds and the religious leaders start to grumble. They have the same response as the Israelites in Exodus 16. Jesus looks at them and says, Don't labor for food that perishes. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. What he's saying is that God himself in the flesh is the real sustainer of life, not physical provision. And the crowds don't want to hear any of that, so they grumble. They don't want it. They want the bread. It's the same issue the Israelites have, that we have, that the crowds have. They want what God can provide, but they don't trust God himself, even when he's standing in the flesh right in front of them. Sometimes you and I think we'd trust God more if he'd just prove himself, if he'd just appear to us. And yet he does that to the Israelites right here. He appears to them in a glorious cloud, and a couple verses later, they're sinning. Let me translate this a little bit. If you're determined to grumble, complain, and see only what you lack in life, that's all you'll ever see. You'll never see the hand of God right in front of your face. If you're always dictating to God the terms and conditions of your agreement, then you are not in covenant with him. You are simply a consumer. Is it any wonder that the world is so full of people who twist the scriptures and find fault with God? People whose thinking is fixed on the physical instead of the spirit. The Apostle Paul says of these kinds of people with tears in his eyes in Philippians 3, their end is destruction because their God is their stomach with minds set on earthly things. If God drives you into the proverbial wilderness, then rejoice that you're sharing the same kind of life as Jesus. If you're where you don't want to be, then you're in company with every great man and woman of God since time has begun. Abraham was driven into a place where he had nothing and no one. Moses was set adrift as a child, bankrupt. David was delivered into the wilderness with nothing. Elijah nearly starved to death, running for his life. Daniel was thrown to the lions, and Jesus was driven into the wilderness to be tested by Satan, and yet God provided for every single one of them. The lesson of the manna is simple. God alone provides. Your skills can't, your discipline can't, your 401k can't, your education can't, your manipulation can't, your family cannot, and your wealth cannot. It will grow wings and fly away. And if the last year has taught us anything, it is this, that God alone provides. He's the only resource that cannot be depleted. And he's the only rock that won't give way under your feet. He will go to extraordinary lengths to make sure that you learn this lesson so that you do not build your house on the sand, but that you build it on the rock. 
and if this lesson seems harsh, it's because the consequence of sin is harsher still. He is willing to discipline you now, giving you only daily bread so that you learn deep down in your spirit, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus once rebuked those who were hoarding up possessions for themselves in Luke 12. And he says, take guard, or take care, and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced much. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones and store all my grain there. And I'll say to my soul, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you've stored up, who do they belong to now? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Luke 12. How do you handle testing? I can't say it enough. Look for God and not his blessings. Otherwise, the blessings of this life may end up being curses for you, and your possessions can take possession of you. So be generous. And if you've never learned the practice of giving, start doing it. Tithe. Give to missions. Go above and beyond. Look at these back walls full of people who have surrendered their security, their closeness to family, and all promise of a financially secure future in order to name Jesus where he has never been named. And they do that willingly. So why are some of you building bigger proverbial barns and hoarding up manna when half the world goes hungry without the gospel? What are you doing? I am no televangelist fraud looking to defraud you. I am one of your pastors, and I stand here because I care. Because I seek to challenge you to not store up treasures for yourself and not collect more manna than you need. The purpose of daily bread is to teach you that God will always provide for your needs. Don't trust in riches. Trust the Lord. I challenge you to begin giving, begin tithing, and see if God doesn't provide above and beyond what you ask and think. Be generous and look to God, and he'll provide for what you need. Take him at his word, collect only what you need, and see if he doesn't bless you in innumerable ways beyond something as cheap and common as bread and money. Take him at his word, because I would hate for you to be like Esau, trading his eternity for a cup of soup. But just like you and I, the Israelites have a tough time taking God at his word. God tells Moses to say to the Israelites, let no one leave any of it till morning, but they did not listen. Some of them left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and smelled and Moses was angry. The people also don't listen to God regarding the Sabbath and try to work on it. And he responds in verse 28 and 29, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you enough bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. And in verse 30, the people finally get it, and they take a rest, and they stop trying to collect. I'm going to call the worship team back at this time. Listen to me. The lesson of manna 
is not simply about present provision. It's about future promise. You see, God provides enough manna for two days and gives instructions on how to preserve it, and he provides food ahead of time so they can obey the Sabbath, but he hints at something else that's easy to miss. And I want you to listen very closely to verse 31. Listen to this. Now the house of Israel called the name of the bread manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. In that little verse, God gives us a hint that the manna he gives is more than about the present. It's about the future. You see, at the beginning of this book, the book of Exodus, in chapter 3, you might have heard of this story in the past, maybe you haven't, God speaks to Moses out of a burning bush. And when God speaks to him, he gives him this promise in verse 17. I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. And I can't help but wonder if Moses didn't smile to himself the first time he tasted that wafer. It was the taste of honey. It was a reminder of the promise. Sometimes God gives us reminders, encouragements, that even though we're not where we're supposed to be yet, he's bringing us there. The manna was literally a foretaste of the promised land. And the manna only stops coming when their feet are planted in the promised land. And here's the joy in all of this. They failed test after test, and yet God gives them a taste of what's ahead for them. So if you feel like you've blown it, you've sinned too much, and you've missed the lesson, don't despair because God is merciful and each new day brings new mercies and fresh bread for those who will trust the Lord. There is promise ahead for you. So if you've fallen, get back up and taste and see that the Lord is good. How do you handle testing? You keep walking towards promise. If you failed a test recently, then this is a very important moment for you because how you handle failure is every bit of importance as how you handle success. In one of my journals, I have a list of all the times that God has come through for me. And when I feel down, I, I reread them and recall to mind the little encouragements, the little foretastes he's given me of what's to come. Don't grumble about your past and your present. Reread them as a testament of what's coming in your future. As Psalm 107.9 says, He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul He fills with good things. And as we take communion in just a moment, it's a foretaste of resurrection. For those of you joining us online, you can be spiritually united with this, even though physically separate. And if you didn't receive one of these coming in, just leave your hand up, and the ushers will get to you in just a moment. You see, instead of tasting like honey, this taste reminds us of the death of our Lord. It is simultaneously a bitter and a sweet emblem. It reminds us that we were provided with living bread at a cost that doesn't perish. It reminds us that just like Jesus, even if you suffer, 
you will live again on this earth in resurrection. And if we believe in the bread that comes down from heaven, Jesus himself says in John 11, whoever believes in me, though they die, yet will they live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. If you're suffering, this is your foretaste of peace. If you've lost someone, this is your foretaste of reunification. It's your taste of healing, forgiveness, redemption, and wholeness. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all of your diseases, who heals all of your iniquities, who redeems your life from the pit. If you are broken, this is your foretaste of wholeness. You have this promise within you. The promise that Jesus made that those who are in him will make it safely into the kingdom and you will be protected from the touch of the evil one. So as you take this, don't grumble like the Israelites about what you don't have in the past. Turn grumbling into praise and let this manna remind you of your future, that though you don't see it now, you await the promise, that you would join everyone who is in the wilderness to say, I don't see it yet, but I taste it. Let's take the bread as a remembrance of what is to come because of his sacrifice. In the same manner, the blood of Christ serves as a reminder that your sins are behind you. The scriptures say they were cast into a sea and they're far from you as the east is from the west. Your sins can't get further away from you. Your penalty's been removed from you. Let's take this blood together in remembrance of him. We're going to worship again in just a moment. But before we do, I'm going to lead you in a little prayer, and I want you to, to focus and pray with me. Let's raise our hands to the Lord. Father, we turn our grumbling into praise. Where the Israelites' praise turned into grumbling, I pray that you would reverse the curse for us. Father, I pray that you would turn grumbling and complaining into shouts of praise because you have sustained us through what's unsustainable, God. We declare to you that better things are ahead for us than anything that's behind us. I pray, Lord, that you would bless these people, keep them, make your face shine upon them, and show them that there is promise ahead for them. I pray you would give them a foretaste of it in the present, God that they would experience the kingdom now as in anticipation of the kingdom that is to come. God, I pray you'd bless them, that your spirit would be upon them, and that you would keep them. In the matchless name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.